0: Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 11, chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 12, 1 through 11. The power of love is a curious thing. Makes one man weep, makes another man sing. Huey Lewis, 1985, the poet. Endless number of songs about love and the power of love and what love does. And this is because human beings understand that love is genuinely powerful. It moves, it motivates, it compels, it changes people. Love is an incredible force. And love works in in a couple of different ways, right? Like, if you love someone, you serve, you seek, you, 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 you want to bless, you will sacrifice. Jesus said there is no greater love than one would lay down his life for his brother, for his friend, right? So love is seen in sacrifice, service. It moves, it compels. But the flip side of that is also true. When you are loved... When you know that you are loved, it elevates you, it inspires you, it motivates you, that compels you as well. To feel unloved and forgotten is death to many. But to know that you are loved is life. And when you know that you are loved, you you like to, you want to, you seek to please the one who loves you in response, not out of a sense of mere duty or obligation, but out of joy. We're strengthened by love. And in the passage that we're looking at today, I want us to see this principle. That is, the love of God for his people moves us to trust and pray. The love of God, that is the love that God has for us, moves us to trust and to pray. Some of this is a bit subtle in this passage. Other parts of it are more explicit. So what we're going to do in this passage, we're going to divide it into two sections. This, This passage, verses 1 through 11 in Acts 12, is really about Peter's arrest and his rescue. That's simply what it is. But what I want us to see in verses 1 through 5 is this principle of death that is at work uh, in the world that is impacting the church. And in verses 6 through 11, I want us to see this principle of deliverance, God's work in the world, and in particular, in the church. So, verses 1 through 5 of Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to understand your word, to not just get it, to not just understand its meaning, but to be changed by it, Lord? Would you you move us to respond in faith and in repentance? Would you change us where needed? Would you strengthen us where we are weak or break us where we are proud and stubborn? We offer ourselves to you, Lord, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in verses 1 through 5, we see that the church is again in trouble. These are dark days. These are dark days, scary days. God is doing a lot of great things, but there is a lot of pushback. There is hostility coming against the people of God. And we read about King Herod, right? King Herod is coming after the church. He executes James, Who is this Herod? This is King Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Okay, so he is in charge in the region, right? This is a Roman-occupied Israel, so it's filled with Israelites, right? The Jews are there, but it's occupied by Rome, and so there's King Herod Agrippa I. And Herod, by the way, this Herod, his grandmother was Jewish, and Herod is the very... A stereotypical politician. He's playing games, always playing games. Herod has a Jewish grandma, so what does he do? He leverages his Jewish identity to gain favor with all the Jews that he's overseeing. He doesn't really care, but he plays it up. He plays that card. He wants them to know, like, hey, I'm with you, I'm one of you, I really believe, I'm really down. And so they, he temple uh, festivals, uh, ceremonies. He's all pro Judaism superficially. He wants to gain favor. He wants to be liked. He wants to be popular. And we see this really play itself out in verse 3, because as he is persecuting the church, as he's he's being a, a politician, right, he begins to persecute the church, but not out of principle. He persecutes the church really because it gains him a better hearing among the people, Right? He is a politically motivated persecutor. And we see it in verse 3 very clearly. He's gone after James in verse 2. Verse 3 it says that when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he also then went after Peter. So this is the kind of guy that he is. Herod is going after the church, but it's not because he has a, a, a principal moral disagreement. Many of the people who came after and persecuted the early Christians, and even some who might want to persecute Christians today... They do so because they sincerely believe that we are the bad guys. They sincerely believe that we are wrong. We know that they're wrong, but they're not pretending. They actually think that we are some sort of cancer that needs to get eradicated. That's not the case with him. He is a stereotypical politician. And this is why James is executed. Right? James is executed. Now, listen, we know why. It's because he is preaching the gospel, he is making disciples, he is being faithful to God. Who is this, James? This is James and John, the Thunder brothers, right? The the, the 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 sons of thunder. These are well-known disciples, apostles. And it says that Herod put him to death by the sword. This is really a reference to Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 18. Again, he's playing that game with the Jewish heritage on his grandmother's side. Because there in Deuteronomy, it says, if, if, there's an, if there's one in Israel found to lead a person astray to worship a false god, he should be stoned. But if he leads the city astray, he should be put to death by the sword. So Herod plays that card, says, oh, we see what's going on here. This guy is leading the city astray. He is leading people away. He is getting them to to embrace this Jesus of Nazareth, who is king of the Jews, who established a kingdom, who died. But they say he rose and ascended into heaven. He promises the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And they put James down. Everybody knew James. James. And now he's going after Peter. Peter. Listen, if you've been following along in the book of Acts, you know, like, listen, Peter started off as a as sort of a, a temperamental uh, believer. Like, he was, he's, he's always been fiery. He's, he's always been ready to go, but he's also been ready to bail. Like, he's been a little hot and cold. But by the time we get to the book of Acts and Christ has not only resurrected from the grave, but he ascends into heaven, Peter is different. He's changed. He becomes the leader, the most recognized leader in the church. And so now here it's like, well, we're going to take him next. We'll take down the big guy We'll go at the boss level. So Peter is arrested. They arrest the leader. Now he's arrested during this this time of, of festivals and Herod's going to hold him until after the Passover because if they were to try to bring him out, bring him to trial, and decide what they're going to do with him, whether it's, it's a severe punishment or death, to do that during this whole Passover celebration would be not blasphemous, but uncool, we'll say. And so he's like, we're going to hold off, we're going to push it off, we'll wait till that's all over. And so we see in verses 3 through 4 that he's locked up in what we would call max security, maximum security. There's no playing around He is not going anywhere. It says, um, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Four squads of soldiers. That's four squads made up of four soldiers. So he's got 16 people, 16 soldiers guarding Peter, probably in the fortress of Antonia, which is in, in the northwest corner of the temple. So Peter knows where he's at. It's a temple, spent most of his life going to this temple worshiping the lord in this temple and now he's locked up in the prison that's in the northwest corner what's he thinking what's peter anticipating what happened to his friend a man he loved james is dead fresh dead So Peter knows that this is very likely. They went after James and now, whether, listen, I don't care how humble Peter is at this point, he knows he's kind of the big deal in the church, the most recognized figure. And so when they put this close guard around him, why are they putting this close guard around him? Why 16? He's not John Wick. You know, he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna MacGyver himself out of there. Why, Why all the guards? The church ain't gonna break him out. You know, it's not... Billy the Kid and his gang of of horse riders or rebels. Like, why are they, why all the security? You remember Acts 5? Because God has this habit (laughs) of letting his people out of jail. And not all the time, some die. James died, Stephen died. But it has happened. People have been broken out, set free. It will happen again later on. And so, to, to lock it down, to make sure there is no escape, nothing goes wrong. Peter is in maximum security prison, and death is expected. I mean, sure, he could get away with whippings and lashings, but why? If he is the the biggest influence of this cult, right, that it's considered to be, why not just put him to death on the same grounds that they put James to death? And so while Peter is locked up in jail facing if not a certain death, a probable death, what is the church doing? The church can't free him. They're not going to bust him out. The church can't free Peter, but the church can pray. And so they pray. And they don't pray as like a last resort. I, listen, I know that some of us use prayer as a last resort. Like we're like, oh, man, I, I can't do anything else. I guess I'll throw up a, a prayer. Right? I'll, I'll throw up a prayer as if it might work, might not work. Like it's almost like we don't believe that God responds to prayer. It's almost as if we don't believe that prayer is a thing that God invites us to do. It's like we don't believe in prayer. Like, well, we believe in God, but we don't believe in prayer. We use it as a last resort. That's not what's, what's happening here. The church is engaged in earnest prayer. Earnest, it means emphatic. It means struggling. Struggling. It means intense. You ever pray that way? You ever pray so intense that you hurt? That you cry? You ever been so desperate for God to do something that only He can do, to provide something that only He can provide? You don't have any way of fixing the situation. And so you pray earnestly, intensely, in such a way that you're groaning? I know that you have. That's what they're doing, they're praying. They're praying because they know God loves them. They're praying because they know God loves Peter. And if God loves them, he is listening to them. They pray because they are commanded to. They're praying for Peter because they they remember him as their brother in prison. Hebrews 13 verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. They are praying as if they are in prison, intensely. They have not forgotten their brother. They mourn with him while he's mourning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, it says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is their mindset. That's not just their leader. It's their brother. They have a shared collective identity. They're not just a bunch of individuals like we tend to think of ourselves in America. They are one. They are a family. The family of God. They are the church. And when one hurts, they all hurt. They all feel it. And so they are praying and as the church is suffering. And so listen, the church suffers in every generation, in every culture, the church suffers, but in different ways. Sometimes the church winds up suffering because things are so prosperous and easy for them that they wind up eroding from inside through apathy, laziness, and indulgence. Other times the church is hurting because life is hard and difficult and there is much persecution and attack from outside. Sometimes the church is struggling simply because of the context in which they live, where the environment itself is hostile to all human beings, and so the church suffers. So here we see the church is suffering. It's really nothing new. It's not unique. And what the church does in facing a, a context of death is they pray. They pray. So that's the context of death. Death is at work, afflicting God's people. But in verses 6 through 11, we see this act of deliverance. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. and when they had passed the first and the second guard they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them on its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him and when Peter came to himself he said now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting it's an incredible series of miracles that's what that is that's an incredible series of miracles. God could have done this in a bunch of different ways. He could have just, you could have just sort of popped Peter out of there and then transported him somewhere else. But he doesn't do that. A series of miracles. It's absolutely incredible. And what I love about this in verse 6, Peter is in maximum security prison, chained to soldiers. There is no escape. And there is a very probable death looming the next day. And what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's resting. He's trusting. I have a cold and I have a hard time sleeping at night because my nose is stuffy. I got a headache. Poor me. Baby Jojo just can't handle it. Oh. Peter is facing execution. He just saw one of his closest friends murdered by the state for being faithful to God, for preaching Jesus, he's on deck and he's sleeping, he's resting, he's trusting because he is assured of the love of God for him. There's no promise of freedom. God doesn't promise him freedom. God doesn't promise Peter a long life. And yet his faith in God gives him peace. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some of you have experienced that, right? Where you are in a situation that is beyond your ability to deal. You can't handle it. It's too much. It's crushing you. And it will crush you entirely. But in the midst of praying and reaching out and trusting God, you find a peace that you can't really explain. It's not even reasonable. How is it reasonable for Peter to be at peace right now when he's facing death? To the world, it's not reasonable at all, but for him who knows the promise of God, which is not to free him from that temporal, physical danger, but to strengthen him for whatever is next. He can rest. So Peter's sleeping, chained up, Max, Max Security Prison, and an angel of the Lord shows up in verses 7 through 9. Angel shows up, he's in the cell, miracle number one. Boom, manifestation of, of an angelic being. Boom, light. Light shines, fills the cell, right? So the the angel is there emitting this light and the guards remain asleep. They're not waking up. Peter's still sleeping. He's not awake either. So everybody's still asleep. Angel is there. And what does he do to Peter? Do you notice that? He doesn't touch him. He hits him. He he, 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 He strikes him. I like to think he just, like, slaps him, like, wake up! Like, that's just, that's funnier to me. I don't know what he did, but he physically touched Peter. By the way, so when you're talking angelology, demonology, don't make a big deal out of this, but that angelic beings can manifest their presence in such a way that they can make contact with the physical world is very interesting. For another day. So, he slaps Peter in the face, or whatever he does, And uh, he says, all right, listen, let's go. Let's go. Get dressed. Get your shoes. We're out of here. It sounds urgent. Now, it's not because, like, the angel's not afraid that they're going to get caught. He's an angel. (laughs) He's going to do what he wants, right? He's the messenger of God. He's carrying out the plan. But there is urgency still. There's some sort of urgency. Like, get dressed. We're not playing games. We've got a lot to do. You've got places to go. God's got a plan. So... Put on your clothes, put on your sandals, and gird up your loins. That is, tie up that big dress that you wear so that you don't trip on it when we're running. we got to book it, and so they go. Now, along the way, what does it say? Peter doesn't know what to believe. It says in verse 9, Peter went out, and he's following the angel. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. I mean, I love this about Peter. That's... That's just so honest. I would expect a book that we write about our people to be like, and Peter completely trusted the Lord, knew that the angel was guiding him into safety and just sang hymns of praise. No, he's like, Peter was like, ah, in his mind, he's like, this ain't real. This can't be real. What's real isn't going to die tomorrow. Maybe God has given me a vision. That's what Peter thinks, maybe this is a vision. He's confused. He's just confused about the whole thing. How can this be real? Maybe it's a metaphor and I'm supposed to learn something as I face the gallows tomorrow. Who knows what's going through his mind? But scripture says he's confused and did not believe that this was God actually setting him free. Thought maybe this is some kind of a vision. And it's not until... A miracle after, they get past one guard, they get past another guard, they get to the iron gate. Iron gate swings open, another miracle. Boom, they're out, they're gone. This is incredible. Led down the street, angel takes off, and Peter comes to, and he's like, holy smokes, this was real. I am free from what they wanted to happen to me. There was no confusion. He knew exactly what the plan was. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod? And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? Murder! Death! Because the whole culture, the whole community, saw the church as this threat, as this toxin that needed to be bled out of their culture. Well, Peter's confusion gives way to confession, and he's free after a succession of miracles. I love it. And there's a couple of things here that we should take note of, right? One one is that no one, no thing, can stand in the way of God's purpose. God's purpose, God's decree, what he has decreed will come to pass. What he has said will be, will be. If God has a plan for you, the devil can't interrupt it. The world cannot derail it. If God has a plan for you that he's like, I'm going to bring you and I'm going to make you into this, you can't stop God. We see it here. We don't know the plan in specific details usually until after the fact. But God's plan, God's will stays. And secondly, let's just note that God hears prayers. This all happens after the church is intensely praying. And I know some of you are like, well, God would have just done it anyways. Because you can't stop God's plan, so what's the point in praying? Can't stop God's plan. He's already decreed it, so what's the point in praying? There's no point in praying because God's already determined that he's going to get Peter out of there. I hear that sometimes. The the problem is, is, that's a very underdeveloped view of God's sovereignty. Yes, God has decreed the end. He has decreed the event. He has decreed, I will set Peter free from that maximum security prison. But he's also decreed the means to that end, the path to it that the church would be intensely praying. And in all of this nobody is being manipulated behind the scenes. Their arms are not bent behind them so that they're forced to act. God is sovereign over all of this and the church is acting freely. We will pray for our brother that God does what only God can do. They pray, and God acts. He responds. And the reason, the reason they pray is not just because they know that prayer works, right? Because if it was just something like that, then well, they, you, you might be a little more dicey on the situation. If, how does prayer work? Because I, I pray for things, and God says no all the time. How is prayer working then? Prayer works in that every prayer we offer in faith is heard by God, God hears us because he loves us. So we pray. And God hears. In all of this, it's the love of God for his people that moves us to trust, like Peter, and pray, like the church. It's the love of God. See, it's behind the scenes in all of this, God's love. God's love moves us to trust him. Right, when you... When, When you are loved by someone, right, when you are loved by someone, you know you can trust them. Now, you might love somebody, but if you're not sure of their love for you, you you don't trust them very much, right? You might get a little nervous. There are many abusive situations that, that some people find themselves in, spouses, children, where they actually love a parent or a spouse, but they are abused by one that doesn't genuinely love them back, clearly because of the demonstration of abuse. So they don't trust. They have love for them, but not love from them, so there's no trust, but God loves us, and we are assured of this because of Christ's sacrifice. Listen to this passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Listen to this passage. Many of you know it, but listen to it in light of what we're talking about here, how the love of God is the thing, the thing, that gives us the bed upon which we rest and trust. Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The answer is no. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In death, we are more than conquerors. In scourging, in loss, in confusion, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is the bed upon which we are able to rest in dark and uncertain days, in persecution, in pain. We trust because he loves us. We gain peace and confidence and the ability to persevere. The love of God for us moves us to trust and to pray, right? God's love moves us to pray, to to go to him with our needs and our problems, right? And the reason it does is because if he loves us, he hears us. I'm going to speak in a stereotype, so cut me some slack. In marriage, oftentimes I hear that the wife wants to speak and share with her husband, and her husband is not listening to her. And of course, she gets frustrated. It's a stereotype. Sometimes it's the other way around. Just roll with it, though. So she wants to speak to her husband, she wants to talk to him, and he isn't listening. He doesn't seem to be listening, And don't say you are listening, because we know you're not. You're trying to, you're trying to multitask, and you're, you're not listening. So they get frustrated, and it's not because the wife thinks she's so important, and you need to listen to everything. that's not what it is. By virtue of you, not listening to her gives the impression that you do not love her, because love listens. Love is present. Love wants to know. Love brings intimacy. And so that's the confusion, right? If we thought that God didn't listen, we wouldn't pray. How do we have assurance that God hears us? Because in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. We're united to Christ. Christ intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. God is our heavenly Father who hears because he loves? And like a good dad, he's kindly disposed to give us the things that we need or desire. He hears because he loves. And our prayers are earnest and sincere, right? First Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean pray at all times and never stop praying. That doesn't make any sense. Now, you've got other things to do. You know, you, sometimes you're, you're talking and you're not praying. Like, but to pray without ceasing means to pray in perseverance, to persevere in prayer, to pray continually in that whenever the needs arise, we pray and we don't give up. We don't give up in faith. We continue. This is earnest prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 Starting in verse 18, Paul says, Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So keep praying, don't stop. Keep praying for all the saints, pray earnestly. Yeah, this is, this is what the love of God does just in part. It moves you to trust, it moves you to pray. Yeah. I know that there are a lot of us that are that are struggling. We're struggling with doubt and insecurity. We're going through affliction, pain, loss. And the temptation is to withdraw. And I'll tell you this, it's when we lose sight of the love of God that our faith begins to shrink. Why do any of us love God? First John says, we love him because he first loved us. It's that basic John 3.16 stuff, 3.16 stuff is basically what it is. When you know that God loves you and sought you and sent his son to save you and you've been caused to be born again, he's adopted you into his family, he's justified you, he's given you every spiritual blessing, when you know that God loves you, your response is to love him back. When you get distracted by the world and lose sight of God's love, your faith grows weak. You trust less. You pray less. And I've been there. I know you've been there. Some of us are there right now. And then we're trying to just muster up the strength. Well, I'm just going to, I just need to pray more. I just need to believe more. As if we can will it into existence when really the secret is going back to the beginning, going back to the gospel and saying, my, how God loves me. Unworthy in every way. Spiritually ugly. Worthy of his wrath. And yet, He chooses to love me, sets me apart for salvation, forgives me, cleanses me, renews me, promises me all of this and more. When you know that God loves you, you love him back and then you can trust and then you pray. So that's the encouragement. My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is if if you are struggling in your faith, if you are doubting, if you are finding it difficult to trust God or to even offer up a prayer, maybe it is in part because you've lost sight of God's love for you. Not that you're completely saying God doesn't love me. Just lost sight of it. So go back, read his word. It is a love letter of sorts. And if you are not a believer, I want you to I want you to consider this account of what God did because what God did was he invaded circumstance. He sent this angel to go in to this dark cell to light it up and to set a prisoner free. And this is what he does for every person who believes. One of uh, my favorite hymns is And Can It Be. And it is, it's written by Charles Wesley. Um, it's one of those hymns that I've, I, I know it by heart, I could sing it every weekend and be a happy guy. But verse four is about, or based on Acts chapter 12, verses one through 11. Verse four in this hymn is taking this story and showing how it parallels what happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. Here's what it says. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, and my heart was free. I rose, went forth, And followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It all happens because God loves the unlovable. He loves us and sets us free free. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, you are living in darkness. Your eyes have grown accustomed to it, but you are living in darkness, and it is only the light of the gospel that can give you sight. It's only the the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he died for sinners that can break the power and the bondage of sin so that you can be set free to follow him and to find the purpose, the God-given purpose for your life. And So we want to encourage you, look to Jesus And believe in him who saves all who are willing, even the worst, even me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your sovereign care. We're grateful for your saving love. God, would you work in us to grow in our faith that we would be a people who really do trust you even when everything in this world is telling us that all hope is lost? Would you move us to be a people that pray to you earnestly when we know that there's nothing that we can do to change the situation, Lord, would you sanctify us and cause us to grow in our love for you based on your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.